This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org slash nomis, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for April 10th, 2020. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up this week, we talk with staff writer Robert Service about the debate over airborne transmission of the novel coronavirus. Then, news writer Jennifer Cousin Frankel joins us to talk about the genetics and brain circuitry behind anorexia nervosa, an eating disorder that affects about 1% of people in the United States. Now we have staff writer Robert Service. He wrote this week on a debate over whether the novel coronavirus is transmissible by air. Hi, Bob. Hi, Sarah. This has come up before, this idea that COVID-19 might actually go through the air from person to person. What has brought this idea back to the forefront? I think part of it is it's just that people continue to learn lots more about this virus as time goes on. And so the wealth of understanding about it, it and how it likely spreads continues to increase. And I think what you're seeing is public health officials and policy people trying to be flexible and trying yeah. to be responsible to pay attention to the latest data and perhaps err on the side of caution. So how do you decide if something is transmitted through the air? I mean, we know that respiratory droplets can carry this virus, but what changes the definition to airborne transmission? What has been clear from the outset of this pandemic has been that, that this virus transmits pretty readily from what they call respiratory droplets when people cough or sneeze. So these are much larger. I mean, sometimes when you sneeze, you can actually see the things coming out of your mouth. That's been the primary understanding as the main route of transmission. And those larger droplets, which can be on the order of 100 micrometers or even up to a millimeter or something like that, they are big enough, whereas gravity will essentially pull them to the ground pretty quickly. And so that's where the whole social distancing recommendation for keeping two meters apart from each other, that's where that comes from. So it's related to the drop size and how long they stay in the air. And, and basically how heavy they are. And so these, all these drops tend to be encased in saliva and mucus. And so they, gravity pulls them to the ground. What has been less clear is what about smaller droplets? So when we breathe or talk or sing or what, what have you, we got give off a continuous mist of 
ultra fine droplets, maybe on the order of a micron or so. Below five microns is what they call an aerosol. And so these droplets are so small and lightweight that they can essentially suspend for up to hours in air and sort of dance around like little dust particles that you might see or something like that. And so then that raises the question of, okay, is this happening with COVID? Is the virus being transmitted in these droplets? And so that's where some of this new information comes in, new studies, and now new recommendations. Right. So there's a recommendation from the National Academies of Science, the U.S. National Academy of Science, to consider that this might be in aerosol-sized particles. Correct. They have a standing committee that is now looking at emerging infectious diseases, trying to offer the best insight they can do to help guide policymakers on recommendations for public health. They gave a, sent a letter to the White House on Wednesday saying... April 1st. April 1st. But this is not an April Fool's joke, unfortunately. Yeah. But they did send a letter saying the evidence they see is consistent with aerosol spread of the virus. So that doesn't mean that it's nailed down for sure, but they're trying to, I think, I'm not, I can't really speak for them, but I think what they're trying to do is err on the side of caution and say, look, it looks like this might be happening in some cases. So we need to, to let people know about this. What kind of evidence did they see that it might be in the aerosols? There's several different lines of, of evidence here. Back in March, some researchers from the NIH wanted to explore this question. And so they they measured aerosol droplets below five micrometers. And they found that, yes, in fact, these could suspend in air for up to three hours with active virus. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that if you or I were in that situation and we breathe those in, that we would necessarily get sick. We can't right. say that. We don't know how many viral particles it takes to get sick. We don't know if infectious patients are actually producing these either. A couple more studies they looked at did try to get at that a little bit. In one, some researchers led by folks at the University of Nebraska, they sampled the air and surfaces in the rooms of patients isolated with coronavirus disease. Mm -hmm. The patients were bedridden, and so they sampled beyond two meters away. So this would then assume an aerosol transmission, and they found you know, hard to reach surfaces up high or down low or things like that. They did isolate viral RNA. And they also did air sampling, again, from more than two meters away and and registered viral RNA. But there you are with RNA instead of actual viral particles. So it sounds like a lot of pieces are coming together from separate kinds of studies. So they were careful to say that they did not isolate live active virus, but they did isolate viral RNA. So that does suggest that the virus is being transmitted. So that is, again, suggestive of the fact that you can have aerosol transmission. And then another study that came out in March from uh, researchers at the University of Wuhan in China suggested that personal protective equipment, so the gowns, masks, things that medical workers who are being heavily exposed to coronavirus when they take them off after a shift, that could be re-aerosolizing the coronavirus again because it's so light and it can resuspend particles in the air. And so that they found some evidence that that might be occurring as well. Taken together, I think the National Academies just wanted to let the White House know that 
this is a possible route of transmission. It's hard to say that this is what's going on in the majority of cases. And so I think that played into the White House's decision last week or the CDC's decision to make a recommendation that is voluntary, that when people go out in public, that they recommend that they wear cloth masks. Are they helping prevent the spread from infected people or are they protecting uninfected from infected people or are they doing both if this aerosol spread is possible? So there's another study that the National Academies looked at that tried to address this point, And that was work by folks at the University of Hong Kong that was published yesterday, I believe. So Friday the yeah, third. third. Yes, that was published yesterday. They took respiratory samples from patients with a variety of respiratory illnesses. And some of these people were wearing face masks and some of them weren't. Not all these patients had coronavirus, but with those who did have coronavirus, they found RNA from the virus in respiratory droplets, both from the larger droplets and from aerosols. What they found was that the masks reduce the coronavirus RNA in respiratory droplets and aerosols. That's suggestive of the fact that masks might be playing a role here in reducing transmission. So I think the pretty accepted notion is, is that cloth masks are so porous, they're not really going to prevent viral particles from getting in if you're breathing them in. But what they could do is they could trap some of the respiratory drops as they emerge. So if you and I go out in public and we're wearing a mask, if we're asymptomatic, we could still be spreading the virus and it might help reduce that transmission there. And so I think that's why public health officials are saying, look, be a good citizen, do your best to try to wear a mask and just do everything we can to reduce transmission everywhere we can. Okay. Thank you so much, Bob. You're welcome. Anytime. Robert Service is a staff writer based in Portland, Oregon. Also in our recent coronavirus coverage, staff writer Gretchen Vogel describes a study being launched by the World Health Organization that will broadly test for antibodies to COVID-19 with the aim to find out the virus's true spread and how long immunity might last. You can find links to Bob's stories, Gretchen's stories, and all our coronavirus coverage at sciencebag.org slash podcast. Stay tuned for an interview with staff writer Jennifer Cousin Frankel about the beginnings of a new biological understanding of anorexia nervosa. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology. Are you or one of your colleagues doing great neuroscience? If so, then we encourage you to apply for the prestigious Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology, an international prize which honors young scientists for outstanding neurobiological research based on methods of molecular, cellular, systems, or organismic biology. Submissions are due June 15th. Visit science.org Eppendorf to apply today. Now we have staff writer Jennifer Cousin Frankel. She wrote a feature this week on the eating disorder anorexia nervosa, Hi, Jennifer. Hi, thanks for having me. You know, this is a really interesting story. A few facts that you presented right up front really surprised me that anorexia affects about 1% of the U.S. population, that the affected are about 90% girls and women, and shockingly, 10% of these patients die, which is a really high number for a psychiatric condition, right? Yes, it's actually pretty startling. That's the highest 
death rate for any psychiatric condition other than substance abuse. And when mm-hmm. you think of it compared to other conditions, particularly those that affect young people, it's it's actually comparable to the mortality from childhood leukemia, which we often mentally might put in a very different category. How do people die from this disorder? Most of them really die from the effects of starvation on their bodies. And in particular, it can cause cause heart problems and cause all sorts of other problems as your body tries to cope with the effects of prolonged starvation. One of the themes that you touch on a few times is low levels of funding for research into this disorder. Why does it get so much less money than other psychiatric diseases with comparable occurrence like schizophrenia? Yeah, that was something that really struck me. So like you say, anorexia nervosa, it's thought to affect just under 1% of the population. And when you look just at funding from the National Institutes of Health, which is kind of a good benchmark, in 2019, anorexia got about $11 million in research funding. And if you compare that to, say, schizophrenia, which has a pretty similar incidence, and it also affects adolescents, um, in particular, although more later, older adolescents, that disease got over $250 million. As to why it doesn't get much funding, that's a question I asked a lot of people. And of course, we're all guessing here. I think there are a few reasons. One reason is that historically, anorexia and eating disorders, I think in general, have been thought of as these kind of culturally driven conditions. So they're predominantly, although not entirely, it's important to say in girls and women, there might be people who have are thought to have this ideal body weight and they're influenced by fashion magazines and maybe their parents are pushing them a lot in different ways. There's this whole narrative surrounding anorexia. They haven't historically been thought of as biological conditions in the way we think of, you know, a schizophrenia or anxiety or any number of other psychiatric conditions. We no longer challenge that those are often rooted in biology. Uh-huh. But it's only recently, and this was really the thrust of my story, that people have begun to recognize that anorexia is rooted in biology. But if the funding agencies haven't come around to see that, then they're less likely to support them. And I think another factor is that often advocacy groups have had a big impact on funding across all different conditions, you know, breast cancer, autism, you name it. And in eating disorders, there aren't as many advocacy groups. You know, I certainly wouldn't blame the families for that. But part of it is that there is still this stigma around these disorders. Well, let's turn to why the narrative seems to be changing on how this disease is understood. You know, one of the points you made was so interesting to me was, do people have the willpower to override the hunger drive? Yeah. So, you know, of course, that's been a prevailing idea that many of us just grew up with, that these are people who are just sort of mentally saying to themselves, I'm not going to eat. I don't want to eat and not eating. The people who have been in this field treating patients and also doing research, several of them have started to question that. And there was one researcher, Cynthia Bulick, a clinical psychologist, said to me, the idea that patients could use willpower to override this very basic drive of hunger that we all as humans share just never rang true to her. It just Mm -hmm. didn't feel plausible. It felt like there was something else going on. And this wasn't just about having some sort of mental ability to push back against hunger. And she and others started to think that there was biology here that was really behind this illness. We're all seeing these magazines, but only some people get anorexia. So could there be an interaction with genes, environment, 
upbringing, all of those things. Yeah. And I think in a lot of ways, this is just like a lot of other more common chronic conditions that we know are driven by a mix Mm -hmm. of genes and environment. So, you know, many cancers, heart disease, many other psychiatric conditions, most of the common conditions out there have a genetic link, and then they have these environmental factors, which we may or may not understand. And so the people doing the research here aren't saying that environment isn't important, but they're saying that this is not about fashion magazines or just an ideal. There's more than that going on. And even that those those factors, when you layer them atop somebody who already has other risks, those could could be relevant. But in many other people, they don't seem to be relevant at all. That brings me to another great quote in your story about how anorexia has been the same for 200 years. Yeah. I mean, that's something that's really striking. And a number of researchers also said to me, it's interesting that the way a lot of patients present with anorexia nervosa is is very similar. The features are very similar. It's a very homogeneous disorder for the most part. And the fact that it, it seems to have, at least from what we know from medical reports historically and so on, there are these common features that have persisted over time, even though, of course, our culture has changed. Obviously, they're looking at genetics to look at the biology of this. And they looked at heritability using twin studies. What did they see there? There have been some twin studies in anorexia, and there are others that are ongoing. And those have found that it appears to be really highly heritable, that about 50 to 60% of the risk of developing anorexia seems to be due to genetic factors. And that's higher than breast cancer. Yeah, it's higher than a lot of other conditions that we already assume and know have a genetic component. Now that's the heritability, but have they been able to tease out any genes that might be involved in anorexia nervosa? Yes. So that's some of the the most recent work. The biggest study on the genetics of anorexia nervosa came out last summer. It was what's called a a genome-wide association study where you take these very large populations of people, a group of people in this case with anorexia, and then a group of people who did not have anorexia, and you do these big genome scans and look for patterns in their genetics that might give you hints as to what genes or genomic regions are predisposing to anorexia. What kind of patterns did they see? Were they able to pull out any specific gene variants that might predispose people to this disorder? They found an overlap with the genetics of other psychiatric illnesses, including obsessive compulsive disorder and depression. That wasn't really much of a surprise because anorexia does seem to share certain features with other psychiatric conditions. But what was interesting were these overlapping associations with DNA that controls different metabolic features. And that includes things like BMI, body mass index, or lipid biology. So that suggests that they may deal differently with nutrients. Yeah, it suggests that there may be metabolic differences in people who develop or are predisposed to anorexia that it's not just about the brain and psychiatry. Mm. Are people who later develop anorexia maybe somehow genetically predisposed to a low BMI? Is there something different about their metabolism? There are a lot of questions that it raises that are really interesting. I was surprised that you didn't mention that there was any sex-linked genes involved in anorexia because we see 
so many women and girls suffering from this that didn't come through in the genetics? That's a really good question. The genetic study did find some hints of associations with uh, genes that are relevant for sex hormones. And that does fit with what some researchers believe, which is that sex hormones could help explain why this is more predominant in females. The question of why more women and girls are affected is a really interesting question. And again, it's probably a mix of you know nature and nurture, like we were talking about before. Another avenue researchers are taking is to look at brain activity. Let's talk about the kinds of studies they're doing. You know, they're asking questions like, what happens in the brain when someone with anorexia is hungry or when they have just eaten something? They're looking at a number of different things as best they can, and these can be tough studies to do. For example, one group has found with MRI scanning that the the region of the brain associated with selecting foods is different in people who have anorexia versus those who do not. And when you and say the region is different, do you mean they use a different region? Yes. Or... Yep. They're using a different region of the brain than healthy people are using. And that has sort of led them to suggest that these people are really using different circuits when they make decisions. In this case, that can make it less amenable to change. It can make it harder to kind of break out of that. And that may help explain why it's not uncommon for patients who have recovered to later struggle with a relapse. There are other people who are really interested in the reward system. You know, one researcher said to me that he thinks that people with anorexia miscode food as being risky rather than rewarding. You know, most of us find food rewarding and we enjoy it. And people with anorexia may not feel that way. It can really induce a lot of anxiety and even fear to be faced with food that you're expected to eat and be a really difficult experience. This is a good point, I think, for us to talk about the current treatment for anorexia. It's called family-based treatment, and it can be pretty successful when attempted early on. Can you describe how this works? So family-based treatment, essentially what it does is it asks parents normally to set aside many of their day-to-day activities, which could mean, you know, scaling back on work, on school, on hobbies, and essentially to sit with their affected child requiring her to eat. It's really about presenting food as medicine. You know, if you think of a parent whose child has cancer and needs to get chemotherapy, the child cannot refuse to have chemotherapy. They need that chemotherapy and no one's going to argue with that. It's kind of taking that same frame of mind. And with this treatment, they do often uh, start to eat again, even though that can be a tremendously difficult experience for them, but they can do it. It's sometimes a little hard to get the exact rates, but in about half of people who try family-based treatment in adolescence, it seems to be effective. And in those who try it really early in the course of illness, it's effective in about 70%. It works, but it doesn't work for everyone, especially older women, or if your family structure might not be amenable to that kind of treatment. How can the the research that we've talked about today, the genetic research or looking at brain circuits, how can that contribute to new treatments? There is definitely effort to try and develop new treatments. Now, some of these are other kinds of talk therapies like cognitive behavioral therapies that could be included along with family-based treatment or could be instead. There are some, some very preliminary clinical trials that are testing other approaches. Uh, you know, there's one small trial looking at a psychedelic drug in patients, in part because it's 
early data has suggested that the drug holds promise in helping smokers quit and in treating alcoholism. And there is some sense that anorexia might share certain features with drug addiction. It's obviously different, but there may be a bit of overlap. Another um, approach is a very small study in people who have very severe enduring anorexia to try deep brain stimulation. The rationale for that study is that deep brain stimulation seems to work in certain people with obsessive compulsive disorder, which is another disorder that anorexia may have some overlap with. That's great. And I feel like it might be too early for the gene, the genetic results to give us a direct line to a treatment at this point. Yes, I think it's too early, which is, you know, often the case with these genetic studies, they, they can't quickly translate into some sort of new medication. But I think what's hopeful about them is they can help give us a bigger picture of what this disorder is. And while it shares overlap with other conditions, of course, it's its own illness. By looking at what it is and what's really happening here, both in the brain and metabolically, and maybe in other ways we haven't yet figured out, that can point the way to new treatments to help to help patients who really need it. Thank you so much, Jennifer. Thanks so much for having me. Jennifer Cousin Frankel is a staff writer at Science. You can find a link to her story at sciencemag.org slash podcasts. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on the Science website. That's sciencemag.org slash podcast. There you'll find links to the research and news discussed in the episode. And of course, you can subscribe to the podcast on Overcast, Stitcher, Spotify, Pandora, Apple Podcasts. You get the picture. This show was edited and produced by Sarah Crespi with production help from Podigy, Megan Cantwell, and Joel Goldberg. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.